Well, it's a joy to be back with you. I always look forward to these times. Uh, I count it an honor and a privilege, uh, and I also experience just every year a bit of intimidation because of the incredible lineup of uh, speakers that I get to join. Um, let's talk about Eric for a moment. Um, he and I are in agreement. There are no stories allowed, period. Uh, part of that's because anything that I would choose to say, he can one-up uh, on me. But let me uh, approach my, my talking about Eric in a different way. I am friends with a lot of pastors, and it's a joy to get to be around them. But of all the pastors that I'm around, I know of none. Uh, besides your pastor, who challenges my heart, my mind, my soul to think and love and care and respond to people in a Christ-like way more than your pastor does. Uh, the things that you hear him say, the things that, that he is involved in and with, I see lived out. And, and he challenges me, and I'm so grateful uh, for his example, I'm grateful for the way that uh, he has prayed with me and for me and even prayed me into the role I am now in. In fact, is he knew I was going to end up at Battle Creek Church before I even did. Um, he was the one who said, I think you need to have a conversation with Alex. And that led from one thing to another. So what does a storyteller do? Good question. Uh, we're still figuring that out. Uh, let me put it to you like this. My job is to find, celebrate, and champion stories of life change, transformation, God at work across all of our six local campuses in the Tulsa metro area. Beyond that, we have dreams and visions to be able to tell the stories of uh, TC, Egypt, and Jordan, so uh, our campuses that are abroad. But uh, let me just give you a couple of examples. We were able to tell a story last week of Jacob. Uh, Jacob grew up in uh, a Southern Baptist church, went to a, a, a Baptist college, and had a, a terrible event happen there. He became an atheist for the next 15 years. During that time, he, he became a raging alcoholic, turned to cocaine, uh, and then back to alcohol. Uh, he always had a desire to be a dad. Uh, he ended up getting married. They had a, a major problem getting pregnant. And as their relationship uh, kept deteriorating, uh, alcohol became more prevalent. Uh, God worked uh, a miracle. She became pregnant. And um, the day that he uh, welcomed his son, into the world is the day he said, okay, something's got to change. So he went into recovery. He, he found AA, and through AA, he got to uh, hear about uh, a fall festival at uh, one of our campuses. Ended up coming to church the very first time he ever stepped foot in a church. After 15 years, God met him. He was saved. The next week he was baptized. He went through a discipleship time. He's now for the last year been teaching uh, and serving uh, in one of our kids' classes. 
seen a complete restoration in this last November, they were remarried. And we got to tell that story. Okay? You're allowed to clap. I get really excited when we start talking about God being at work. Um, and so it's those types of things that I get to, to be a part of and, and what a joy it is. Um, let's talk about one other thing before we dive into where I want us to focus on. Last week I was here. Uh, I got to hear my dad uh, talk about Psalm 145. And I want to draw your attention back to Psalm 145 for just a minute and to verse 4. Here's what it says. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Dad taught on that verse, if you would re remember. And let me just tell it to you in this way. I can tell you that if you were to talk to Jessica or Joe, me or Jamie, my wife, Rebecca or Eric, if you were to talk to Luke Tyler, Jace, or Jenna, Aiden, Noah, Kinsley, or Abigail, what you will find is one generation telling the works of God to another generation. And that is something that we have seen lived out by my parents. And I would say it to you like this, not only to celebrate them, but I would say that as an encouragement to you. If you haven't, start now. It's not too late. Start telling those that you are in community with. Start telling your kids, your grandkids, even if it's something new. Begin the process because the, the, the great news of Scripture is that that can become your destiny, your, your lived out reality even tonight. If you have your Bible. Would you go with me to Psalm 84? Psalm 84. As you go there, years ago, I got the chance to meet Kurt Cloninger. So Kurt is this actor who performed original shows in various spaces and in front of various audiences, as small as a dozen and as many as in front of like 40,000 people. But he's also this dedicated follower of Jesus. In one of the shows that he wrote called God Views, he, he tells different vignettes of how people view God. For instance, there's the sheriff, and they view God as the sheriff, or, or this, they view God as a counselor. They, they view him as a, a grandpa or as an alien. Someone once asked him, what is it that caused you to write that piece? And here's what he said. Show me someone's picture of God, and I'll show you how they live their lives. Now hear it again. Show me someone's picture of God, and I'll show you how they live their lives. And I just want to hang that statement over our time this evening, because my prayer in coming into this evening is that we would see our Father with greater clarity, and in turn be able to reflect his glory with, uh, with greater accuracy after we spend some time looking at Psalm 84. So here's what I want to do. I want us to read all of it, and then we're going to work our way back through it. It's got just 12 verses, and here's what 
it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we're asking that in these next few moments that you would hide us from what is my opinion. Would you saturate us with what is your truth? Father, I humble myself before you and ask that your goodness and your glory would be on display. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the great Charles Spurgeon who once wrote of the Psalms. If the 23rd Psalm be the most popular, the 103rd the most joyful, the 119th the most deeply experiential, and the 51st the most plaintive, then the 84th Psalm is the most sweet of all the Psalms of peace. Twelve verses consisting of 235 words. You know, in various psalms, we discover exactly who wrote it and the circumstances by which or from which they wrote the prayer or the psalm that we have. But Psalm 84 is a little bit different. The author associated with this psalm are the Korahites, or the sons of Korah. Now, you find that name at various times in the Older Testament. But the Korites are set aside for the service of God, and we find that in 1 Chronicles 9. They were placed in charge of worship or the works of service as keepers of the sanctuary. Basically, they were the doorkeepers of the sanctuary, and so you had to pass by them to enter into this. And we find this position dated back all the way to Numbers in the 14th chapter. Now, the work of the Korites, they centered on daily service to the Lord and opening the doors for others to be able to come in and join in the experience of worship. So what I would just set as, as the landing spot for this is that they are speaking from experience. It's experience talking, and I wonder if we can just join in on their worship this evening because I think we come to a great understanding of this author's view of God 
how it impacted not only his life, but his priorities. Not only what he valued, but who he valued. So I want us to move fairly quickly through the opening part because I want us to land in one specific spot. In verses 1 and 2, we get the core of his being. Hear him again. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh, sing for joy to the living God. You know what I love about this? This isn't the, now I lay me down to sleep, this sort of rote prayer. No, this, this isn't just a longing for nothing. These words emanate from deep within the core of this individual. Do you hear the urgency in just the opening couple of lines? My soul longs. My soul faints. My heart, my flesh, it sings for joy. This is passion for the presence of God. To be in the house of the God. To experience more of Him. I just would ask, is the same thing true of, of our lives? You get the core of His being crying out to be in the presence and experience more of God. And here's what this author understands. At the core... He understands the care of his God. Look at verses 3 and 4. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Now, I'll just be honest with you. One of the most frustrating things of, of recent time for me have been the darling, hideous, awful, evil, little birds who like to build a nest on my front porch. I hate them. I, I'm not going to mince words at all with you tonight, folks. Okay? Detest. In fact, it's so much that they start building and I start knocking down. See, here's what happened the very first year. They start building and we were like, ah, they'll go away. They didn't go away. And they just kept dropping all their droppings on my front porch. And I'd knock it down and they come build it back up. And then I put a snake up there and they knock it down. And so... I got real aggressive this last time. Uh, there was no way they were going to win. Because I hate those little birds. I'll just be honest with you. I, there's nothing that I can say that's good about them. Now, why do I say all of that? Because I want you to consider what happens here. This is a different approach. You see, it was the custom of the temple that if birds were to make a nest there, then they left it. They believed that if God brought them there, 
that God must have wanted them to stay there, to build a nest there, so they would let the birds remain. They are a whole lot more spiritually alert than I am. I did not feel the same way. I don't think God ever said, John, let those birds stay there. But I think the imagery is rich. Consider what it says. The sparrow, a home. The swallow, a nest for her young. This isn't a perch for a moment's rest. These are birds taking up residence. And it's that imagery that we are invited into. Now, use that as a catalyst for something that Jesus said. Remember over in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, just look at the birds of the air. I'll be honest with you. I don't think he was saying, look down at the ground. I think he was saying, get your eyes up, look up, look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet, there's an and yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. The end result is that if God allows birds to come near the temple, build homes in the temple, and find care in the temple and in his presence, I just would wonder how much more does he give us that opportunity and that privilege. And not only is God glorified in this, we are blessed by it. Isn't that what verse 4 says? Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. I think about how David wrote in Psalm 122, I was glad. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I just wonder if we could take up residence in the presence of our God. So you get the core of his being. You get the care of his God. And then you get a choice that is made. Let's look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So these three verses are bookended by one thought. There is strength that comes to our lives when we are in the presence of God. And we find that thought throughout the scriptures. Psalm 18, I love you, Lord, you are my strength. Psalm 73, God remains the strength of my life. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield, plus nearly 30 other scriptures that we could have added into this moment just from the psalm. Now, there's strength that comes from being in the presence of God. And what makes this so potent, so powerful, is what we find in the middle of the bookend. It says in verse 6, 
as they go through the Valley of Baca. Now, to my knowledge, as I've studied it, I believe I'm right in saying this is the only time in Scripture you really find that phrase. Some say it could be a literal place near Jerusalem, but this could also be translated the Valley of Weeping. And I think this holds an important truth or an insight for us. And here's what I would challenge you to, to understand, to be able to receive in your soul tonight. No matter the heartache, the struggle, the pain, or the hurt that you are currently going through or will go through, there is strength that comes into our lives if, if we will diligently and passionately seek the presence of God. I just would challenge you. Think of the various scriptures that you are aware of that reiterate this thought. Some came to mind. I thought immediately of Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? For you are with me. It's the presence of God. Right? I think about one of my favorite passages, Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me if you will search for me with all of your heart. And by the way, let's remember the context. They're in captivity. It's in the midst of the struggle. I, I think about all the different ones where, where we get draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But understand, you get that presence not apart. You don't have to wait to get through that valley. His presence is with you in the valley. And can I just encourage someone tonight with this truth? Your setback could be God's set up for him to do something really good in your life. Your setback could be a setup for God to do something powerful. But that comes down to a choice that we have to make. Where's our strength going to be found and what we can do and what we can manage and what we can orchestrate or will we go to the God who made us, created us, knows us, and is intimately aware of everything that we are dealing with? It's a choice that we have to make. But let's consider one other aspect as it relates to verse 7. I got to thinking about this this last week as I, I've just been pouring over this. It says they go from strength to strength. I got to wondering, where are the different times that we, we find words like that? There's strength to strength. There's, um, in, in John 1 and 16, you get um, grace. In 2 Corinthians 3, we get the word glory. And I think that really points us to a great picture. We go from strength to grace 
and more of God's glory, and it all happens within the context of his presence. Knowing this, I want you to consider the cry of his heart. Look at verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Without a doubt, without a doubt, the uh, most often quoted television series in my world is The West Wing. Um, I've watched the whole thing multiple times. In fact, the, the sad reality is if I know my parents are watching it and I know what episode it is, I can probably tell you exactly what's going on. Okay? I love it. It chronicles the, the presidency of Josiah Bartlett. Now, why do I bring that up? Because there's this incredible moment that takes place in the, the final season in the uh, penultimate episode. Okay? They're all trying to figure out, all of uh, Bartlett's staff is trying to figure out where are they going to end up? What are they going to do? Well, C.J. Craig was his um, White House uh, spokesman and then becomes Bartlett's chief of staff. She's got multiple offers. She could go be uh, on board. She could stay in the West Wing. She could go run foundations. But she also has this love interest. And they're trying to figure out, there's, there's this tension, what are they going to do? And there comes a moment where she feels stuck. And Danny, the love interest, is frustrated. And he makes this statement to her. He says, I just want you to talk to me about it. I want us to talk about what it will mean and how we'll make it work. I want us to talk like we're going to figure it out together. I want us to talk because I like the sound of your voice. I just want to talk. God in his grace brought this thought to my mind and if you will allow me a little grace you know what I believe your heavenly father wants you to hear tonight he wants to talk because he likes the sound of your voice he doesn't just like the sound of the voice of your pastor or your staff, or the missionary across the ocean. He created you with a voice, with a purpose. And he just wants to hear your voice. And you know what I believe he also would say? He's got a voice too. And the more we get in the presence of God, you know where I find my heart just resting, God. I just want to talk. Because I like the sound of your voice. It's the cry of his heart. And I pray tonight you would be encouraged knowing no matter what you're going through, 
no matter what you face. Students, oldest one here, whoever you are, he likes the sound of your voice. Talk to him. But that moves to the conviction of his soul. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now this is where a little background will help us. So what's the story behind the sons of Korah? If you go back to number 16, 17, around that area, Korah and some others, they lead a revolt against Moses and Aaron. So there's this coup taking place. They want this change in leadership. So as the leaders of this opposition, they stood outside of their tents, the ground opened up and it swallowed them all up, and all those who were attempting the coup, they're gone. And only a few would survive. And the few who survived, they found this incredible grace from God by being spared. And not only were they spared, but they were assigned to be servants in the sanctuary. And this provides a a poignant understanding for what we just read. Because they sing, they pray from experience. This is experience talking. Just like you have a history and you pass on that history to your family. And to your grandkids, that way they can know what's going on. You know what they know? Better to be a servant in the house of God than to live in tents of wickedness where you are swallowed up and consumed on the outside. You get this this choice and then you get this conviction. I'd rather open doors. I'd rather just let... Be the one to help usher people into the presence of God than to be outside and surrounded by wickedness. So right after, well, I can't say the pandemic because we're still in it. Uh, How about right after the first major lockdown where everything was shut down, our family got a chance to go to the so-called happiest place on earth. We went to Disney World. Now, I've heard all the terrors of taking a family to Disney World, just to be honest with you. I I don't share that same history because we went when it was half capacity. Everything's social distance. We didn't have to wait in line. It was truly a fantastic trip. It was awesome. And it was also temporary. The temporary part I didn't mind. But all this so-called happiness, all this joy that you get from being in in the happiest place on earth, you know what you find? It's gone. You got memories of it, but even those become fleeting. I just love the passion that you get right here. To be a servant in the lowest position possible and... To be in the presence of the Lord is better than luxury in the lap of wickedness. There's a choice. There's a conviction. 
it emanates from the core of his being and the care of his God. I love where it drops us. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. And to my knowledge, it's the only place where God is explicitly called a sun. Here's what I know. Sun is a light and shield is protection. Sun is warmth and shield can be used for shade. A sun above a shield around. You get a light to show the way and a shield to protect you in the midst of the perils along the way. What does that mean for you and for me? Whether you need direction or protection, feel cold or beaten up by the heat of the struggle, here's what you got to understand. The Lord is what you need. And that is who he is. In darkness, he is the sun. In the heat of struggle, he's a shield to protect. It goes on to say, the Lord bestows favor and honor. You know what another translation says? He gives grace and he gives glory. I love that. He gives grace and he gives glory. Grace being God's goodwill. Glory being the incredible gift that we get and receive as adoptions as, as his sons and daughters. And do you know what that means? If you pull it all together, God is working in us and around us and through us and gives us what we need to embrace every situation. And it all points us to the next phrase. Let's land here. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Can I ask you a question? What would your life look like if you really believed what this says? No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You know, as a dad, as parents, you know, Jamie and I make decisions at times for our kids that they don't understand and at times they don't even like. They don't always get what they want, but it isn't because we do not care. Why would we do it? Because we do care. We are their parents. We love our kids. We have their best interests in mind. And here's what I'm discovering. There is a lot of freedom in recognizing and realizing and trusting that God always has my best interest in mind. There's a lot of freedom knowing that God is not going to hold anything back from my life that he knows I need. And how do I know this? Well, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture 
truth is, I thought about teaching on that tonight, but I opted not. Is Psalm 119, not that I was going to tackle all of it, just one verse, verse 68. Do you know what it begins with? You are good, and you do good. He is the very essence of good, and everything he does is good, whether I can see it, whether I feel it, whether I trust it or not. It doesn't change the fact that he is good. You know, for several years, years, do you know that this was my go-to verse? Do you know for several years, virtually every time I prayed, I prayed this verse at some point in that prayer. And it, folks, you got to understand, it is not because I was all the time experiencing the goodness of God. Do you know what I was doing? I was praying this verse as a declaration of faith. God, you are good, and you do good, and I'm not seeing it, but I'm going to trust you. You are good, you do good, and I'm going to release my faith that your goodness is going to be seen in my life. And the reason why I, I had to land there is because of what Psalm 84, 11 says. No good thing. God is good. He does good, and he's not going to withhold any good thing from my life. Think about how Jesus addresses this over again on the Sermon on the Mount. Think of what he says. He says, which one of you, just which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will you give him a snake and said, no. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? So let me ask you again. What would your life look like if you really believed this verse? And let me go one step further. What would your prayer life look like if you really believe this verse? Why? One of my favorite individuals, as far as in the Christian faith to study, is the life of George Mueller. He was incredibly used of God, and he ordered his life really around Psalm 84, 11. And the, the, the truth is, it transformed his life. It transformed everything about it. You see, Mueller ran an orphanage, and yet he never asked others for financial support. He simply believed that God would provide. He was convinced no good thing will he withhold from those who obediently, in, in all integrity, followed after him. So more than once, when his kids would sit down at, at time for dinner with nothing to eat, he would pray, thanking God for his provision. Then someone, sometimes anonymous, would show up at the door while he was praying with bread or milk, and Mueller would walk in with God, and, and he just believed in God's goodness. He wasn't going to doubt. No good thing will he withhold. And he later wrote it like this. If it is good that the orphans have eggs for breakfast, my prayer for eggs will be granted. But if not, my prayer has been answered in a better way than that. Because eggs may fail. God never fails. 
eggs have not been promised. God's goodness has. But Mueller's belief in the goodness of God extended beyond just his orphans. Later in his life, his wife contracted rheumatic fever. And his belief in this verse was once again put to the test. He began praying over and over again for her healing. Believed that God would just intervene, and yet she died. And later, he wrote about it in this way. The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. He said, I said to myself with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner. But I have been saved by the blood of Christ. I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she may be. God will restore her. But if she is not restored again, then that was not a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said, from taking God at his word. Do you know that when Mueller stood up to preach his wife's funeral, he began by quoting Psalm 119.68, which I just previously said, you are good and you do good. He recounted how he preached to himself as his wife was dying. If God pleases to take my dearest wife, it will be good like himself what i have to do as his child is to be satisfied with what my father does that i may glorify him where does all of that faith where does that where do we find it verse 12 Let's finish it. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Can I encourage you tonight? God is who he says he is. He has what he says he has. And he can do what he says he will do. My job as his son, as his child, is to trust my father. We hung over our time these words. Allow me to share them again. Show me someone's picture of God. I'll show you how they live their lives. How's your picture of God been? So when I was in college, I went to a chapel service and got one view of God. It's not all, well, it's not at all correct view of God. And 
truth is, this was largely before the casinos were released in Oklahoma. But someone uh, preached how God